0: December 2018, Turkish-born Canadian professor Ramazan Genkay, 57, disappears from a bar in the notorious Colombian city of Medellin. Weeks later, his body is found in a remote area outside the city. What happened to Ramo? primary sources for this episode include The Star, NS News, the CBC and the AP. Hi guys, welcome back to episode 92 of Unknown Passage, a podcast that tells the stories of those who have gone missing or have been murdered abroad. And for this week's episode, we're going to a place that we haven't actually been to before. So before I get into that, um, I if you're following on like what's going on with my thyroid, I had an appointment yesterday at the hospital to have a scan and it was kind of like in a, almost like an MRI machine where I was like wedged down with a massive foam thing around my head. So I couldn't like escape out from under this <laughs> massive piece of metal. I really can't explain it, but I will have results in about a week. So I will keep you posted on what's happening, whether or not it has to be removed. I kind of hope it is, if it's just going to cause like illness, like it has been with me, but Still not feeling a hundred percent but thank you for everyone who has um, given one-off donations to the podcast we, we're kind of we're not out of lockdown in Melbourne I don't know why they're saying that there's a limit on how far you can travel from home and you can't have visitors at home so I don't know why people are referring to that like as you've got your quote unquote rights back. But yeah, I don't really have anything else to say in terms of any news on, you know, cases we've done or whatever. um, If you listen to my episode on Sarah Everard, Everard, the girl who was kidnapped and her body was found, she was kidnapped in London, Um, even though it didn't really fit the podcast, I did an episode on that a little while ago when it happened and they found her body. So in case you're wondering, um, the POS that killed her, you can say that now because he has pled guilty to her murder. He was PC Wayne Cousins. He's not a police officer anymore. He was 48 and it said he pled guilty um, the other day to the kidnap and rape of Sarah Everard and quote, accepts responsibility for her killing, unquote, which is a really passive aggressive way to say that he did it. Just say that you did it because you're a monster. So not much else has really come out about that. I'm presuming that he'll get a piss-poor sentence because it is the UK and like Australia we have just shitty sentences for just horrible crimes Um, and he'll probably be out in 20 years. He's got kids and he'll be able to see them kind of get older, I'm sure. But yeah, there just hasn't been a lot about her since it happened. And I guess the media have kind of had a bit of an injunction against them because they're keeping it a bit on the down low, I guess, until he pled guilty and now they can name him and say he is the killer um, now that he's pled guilty and things like that. So there's not much else going on. It's very um, cold and gloomy in Melbourne. We're getting into winter. um, July and August are the coldest months, so it's my favourite time of the year. Um, Yeah, so to get into this week's episode just a bit of an introduction how I stumbled across Colombia. So this is a location request for Patreon Patreon Steven who became a patron a couple of months ago. Now He, I think he's American, but he lives in Mexico, but he actually requested Colombia because he had lived there before. Um, And then he also told me that he once lived in Thailand as well. So really interesting people (laughs) listening to the podcast. Um, I find that a lot of you guys like are either really interested in travel or you've lived all over and you've been waiting for like a podcast like mine. So I'm glad that I could oblige So I've avoided doing Columbia um, as there's just so many cases there and some of them you just never get follow-up information again. So around the same time that Stephen requested his Patreon location request, because when you become a patron you get to choose a location for an upcoming episode, I got an email from listener Brett who I think I've mentioned in a previous episode maybe. So Brett, I'm pretty sure he's American, could be British. Um, He lives in Colombia for the last five years in the city that this case takes takes place in, Medellin. And you'd probably know Medellin (laughs) from Entourage, I guess. That's the first thing I think of, sadly, where they're making that movie about Pablo Escobar. But it's kind of got this notorious um stigma around it in relation to Pablo Escobar and the drug cartels and being a very dangerous place and Brett emailed me a bit of about his experiences that I will kind of weave into this podcast um episode because he really put to bed a lot of the misconceptions that people have um, that p- Colombia is a very dangerous place. And actually most people that I know who have travelled through South America loved Colombia. The people are very warm. The crime rate has come down and actually like men are more at risk of being victimised than women. So there's a lot of things that kind of stigmatise places like that when it's really, you know, not not the case at all. So he started telling me a lot about, you know, Colombia and how, you know, Um, A lot of things that people think are not necessarily... The reality. So a couple of weeks ago when it started, when it came time for me to pick a case for Stephen because I hadn't still picked a case for him, I was kind of thinking about episodes of Locked Up Abroad that I've seen. I know there was an episode with a guy who was kidnapped by the FARC, which was kind of like a rebel group in Colombia. And then there's a lot of other cases of the FARC abducting tourists, not FARC, F-A-R-C, it's like an acronym. So I was really stumped because I just couldn't find a case where there was a beginning, a middle and an end. So I actually emailed Brett because Because he'd just emailed me with more information about Columbia. And I said, Do you have any like case suggestions? Cause you live there at the moment. And within like a few hours, Brett sent me four with a breakdown of what happened um, and a link to further information, like my kind of person. (laughs) So This case was number two on the list, and I found it really hard to choose between the four, so I've kind of added them all to the list to do at some point. So throughout this, I will kind of weave a few things that he's told me and Stephen's told me about Columbia um, with the case. So when suggesting this Brett emailed me quote this case got a lot of attention um unquote like he was saying that it got way more attention than a lot of cases do because they're so common these kinds of things um a drugging and a killing of someone to rob them and he that's when he kind of said men are more at risk than women in these parts of the world um but there's a Misconception about women being at risk in this part of the world. Women, I mean, the end game for them is generally robbing for money, and that's why they target men um, as opposed to women. Remember, these parts of the world, like people are very poor. And with the lack of tourism over the last kind of year and a half, people are going to get, you know, more desperate, which I've said on quite a lot of episodes. So he said it's actually men who are most at risk of being drugged and killed and actually being victims of these scams, these online dating scams, which I've come to realise through researching this are quite common. They're kind of branching out and using apps like Tinder and Plenty of Fish um, to, you know, secure their target so basically, Patron Stephen led me to Colombia and Brett um, did quite a lot of emailing, filling it out. So that's how I came across the case of Ramazan Genke. Now, I'm going to say it like that because Spanish coverage in Colombia, which I watched, they said Ramazan Genke, um, and or Genkai. It's G-E-N-C-A-Y, but the C has that little kind of symbol of it. And I don't know what it is because he was born in Turkey and I'm not exactly sure. Um, it makes that kind of different sound. It could be. Um, yeah. So <laughs> and then there was a Canadian coverage that said Genke. So whichever it is, his name is Ramazan Gen K, And he actually a lot of people refer to him as Ramo. That was his nickname. So I will interchange, you know, Ramazan and Ramo um, throughout this. So I think that's pretty much it. This is the first time we're going to Colombia. It's a place that's very, I think, really intrigues people. Um, the stigma and the sense of danger um, associated with Colombia, and really the, also the, Dramatisation on shows like Narcos and things like that, I think have only contributed to Colombia being more of a destination that people would go to when travelling around this part of the world. I know about 10 years ago, um, it started getting really trendy to go there when I was working in a travel agency and I was kind of like, oh God, be careful. But I I actually know like girls from my high school that went there, just a couple of them and travelled through um, with no problems. So let's get into the case of Ramazan Genke. So let's talk a little bit about our victim here, Ramazan Genke. He was born on the 17th of February, 1961 in Turkey, and I'm not sure exactly where. Most sources refer to him as Turkish-Canadian because he'd become a citizen, I guess, of Canada because he'd been there for a couple of few decades at the least. Um, And he was 57 when he died in 2018. So he died just about two and a half years ago. I should say he was murdered because he didn't just die of natural causes. So, in Turkey, he attended a university in Ankara, which I'm not sure if it's the capital, the old capital. But I knew a girl who was a filmmaker, and she actually like went to Ankara because a tiny little film that she made in Melbourne was accepted into the Ankara Film Festival, and they paid for her to go there and everything. and he attended graduate school, I, I guess, in Canada. He went to the University of, and I'm sorry if I pronounce this, this is where he got his master's degree from. It's the University of Guelph. It's in Ontario, Canada. Most of his studies were around the east coast of Canada. Um, And he got his PhD then. He travelled down to the States and he went to the University of Houston where he achieved his PhD. And all of this was in the field of economics. So an area that I would struggle to get through one unit of, let alone get a PhD from and technically become a doctor. This was a highly skilled man and his knowledge of economics, Um, world economics, was really in demand because he would often travel around, you know, speaking at seminars across the world, which you, ultimately, when you become a PhD, you often become a teacher or a professor, you know, in that topic. So, he went on to teach economics at a number of universities in Ontario and then Ottawa, so the University of Windsor, and also Carleton University, which is where my friend and patron Brittany went. Um, and that's in Ottawa, Canada. And he was there until 2004. It was then that he got a professorship, I guess you could, I guess you'd call it that, um, uh, of economics at Simon Fraser University, which is in BC near, it's kind of like just outside of Vancouver, so the other side of Canada. And he was there from 2004 to 2015. And I presume he would have got tenure at some point. So he's kind of the the anti-Jordan Peterson where he's not particularly controversial but he's a Canadian professor. Now I know two of them. So he died when he was still a professor at Simon Fraser University on Christmas Eve 2018 at the age of 57. Um, Simon Fraser University described kind of his work as quote, he was a pioneer in the use of wavelets to analyse financial data in the analysis of high frequency data and in the role of economic networks in financial markets. So good for him because someone has to do it because I don't know what any of those words mean. As I said, he also travelled around the world as a keynote speaker for economic seminars. And when I worked in a travel agency years ago after I graduated university, a lot of the staff, a lot of the bookings, because I worked on a university campus, would be for professors or, you know, um, people doing graduate studies. They would just be given the university credit card um, to go to all these random, like, seminars for like four days in like Norway um, and they wouldn't scrimp on putting you in first class or anything like that because I used to think, Jesus Christ, the best job could be to be a professor at a university because the, sh- the places that they send you and the hotels they put you up in is pretty, pretty good, to quote Larry David. So to describe um, Ramazan or Ramo as he went by He's kind of a little guy. He's quite short. Um, you can actually watch quite a lot of his lectures if you search for Ram- Ramazan Jenkai on YouTube. There's quite a lot that have been both uploaded by the university that he was teaching at at the time he died. Um, I think he had his own channel as well. I kind of watched a few to try to see where he would introduce himself. At no point did he. He's also like a really... <laughs> It's, because it's quite dry material, I always find their delivery of the information very boring. And he's a very slow speaker and very kind of not sure of himself. Um, he's you, you kind of get the feeling that he would have been like a really quiet guy that wouldn't put himself out there much, um, even though his job was to go around and speak about these things that only a set percentage of people like in the world would even fully understand. But He's a very non-assuming, short, kind of slight man with grey hair. Um, Yeah, I don't really know how to describe him, but he's kind of like got a little kind of pixie look about him. According to his public memorial page on DignityMemorial.com, he was married to his wife, Carol, um, for a number of decades. I'm not entirely sure, but they had two daughters, Yasmin and Rana. Um, And according to the memorial, he also had a mother that was living at the time and two brothers as well in Turkey, I believe. It refers to him as a devoted husband and father keep that in mind. So the memorial also says that he was an introvert, quote, who renewed his energy in the forest trails of North Vancouver and the lower mainland of BC, as well as in the practice of salsa, kizomba and bachata dancing. It was with infinite curiosity that he continuously explored cultures across the globe. In recent years, he also discovered the joy of felines in the family, unquote, which same. And you can tell a lot about a man who loves cats. Um, But it just sounds like a beautiful place to live. Um, Listener Belinda, who's a good friend of mine, kind of lives in this vicinity. um, And it's just the, you know, great outdoors in this part of the world in Canada would be perfect. Um, So he was also into salsa dancing. And actually, as fate would have it, one of the last places he was seen before he vanished um, was at a salsa club in Colombia. So he was interested in in the dancing styles of, you know, this part of the world. So the memorial online also asked that in lieu of flowers, the family asked that people contribute to an Istanbul-based charity which is called Hayata Destek, which means support to life, and that supports the Syrian refugees that are living, you know, have been given safe haven in Turkey. So that must have been a charity that was quite close to Ramos Heart. And it also says that his favourite poet was Pablo Neruda. Um, So they actually had like a clip of a little poem by him. So I think I might wrap this up by reading a poem from um, his favourite poet. So at the time of his death, Ramazan lived in North Vancouver. And in December 2018, early December, just, you know, a few weeks before Christmas, which It would have been the worst Christmas for this family to have ultimately. Ramo travelled to the city of Medellin. I, for some reason, I add an extra syllable to that. It's Medellin, um, how you say it, but it's Colombia's second largest city. And I guarantee most of you have instantly thought of something and it's probably like not good about this city. He was there for an academic trip, but it doesn't go into too much about that. But he was probably visiting a university there and was a keynote speaker. He was doing these things all the time. So, Yeah, now this is the point where I'm going to talk about, you know, Colombia a little bit and particularly, you know, Medellin did again. So Colombia, as many of you will know, is a South American country, but parts of it actually jut up into what is classified as North America. So the Caribbean is to the north. We've been to quite a p- few places in the Caribbean. Panama is to the northeast where we went for the Chris and Lissanne episode. Venezuela is to the east, which I haven't done yet, but it's maybe one of the worst off places in this region. So one day I probably will. Brazil is to the southeast and the Pacific Ocean is to the west. But actually, Colombia is one of the few places like that juts into both the Atlantic and Pacific Ocean. So the capital is Bogota and the language language, language is Spanish. Um, and over 1.5 million square kilometres, the population of um, Colombia is almost twice the size of Australia. It's 50 million. So it's a very densely populated place, but it's actually one of the fastest growing in South America and actually people there, it's a really good place to end up, which I'll get into. In fact there's over depends on what source you use but between 70 and 100 languages spoken um due to the different influences over time but these include um European languages creole things like that so the culture in Ca- Colombia is truly fascinating um it's always interested me but it's also kind of got that scary underbelly as well I mean that's what you think but I've been proven wrong everything I knew so the culture in Colombia is really fascinating it's a real melting pot like a lot of places in South America of European, you know, Spanish empire influences, South American settlements moving through, slaves being brought over from Africa um, and European and Middle Eastern immigration into there as well as quite a lot of North American immigration down here as well. Um, Its indigenous populations actually date back over 12,000 years So the country is overwhelmingly Christian. I believe they're Roman Catholic, which is almost 90% of residents. And currently the head is a president. And the legislature with the upper and lower house, it seems to be very similar to here or a British system. But from memory, I think it's a parliamentary democracy or a Republican democracy? I can't remember. So Colombia was under the Spanish Empire from 1499 when they first landed there to their independence in 1810 when Colombia took their independence back. Now It's a bit confusing and I couldn't really make a lot of sense to it. But for a time until 1903, they were actually joined up with Panama and we've been there before. But Panama seceded from this kind of union that they'd built up with Colombia in 1903 and since then the borders that were set once Panama seceded have essentially been set in stone. Unfortunately, since the 1960s, Colombia has been dealt a card that we have covered on this podcast so many times, In mostly comes up in South America and Central America. They've been dealt the card of political instability caused by corrupt governments, violence, drugs, the drug scene, um, and just on and off conflict, which has unfortunately taken more civilian lives than actual, you know, people involved in it, lives who are the the people antagonists causing it and it actually has you know flared up currently um, as i speak the last 20 years um in colombia have really seen some of the lowest crime rates on record due to it was after the death of Pablo Escobar and the end of the Medellin drug cartel which i think probably most of you at least will have seen the movie blow and have an understanding of just how important Colombia was to the drug scene from the 60s onwards. And the country continues to kind of grow in leaps and bounds in terms of economy and more and more entrepreneurs are actually starting their businesses in Colombia. Much like its neighbour, Ecuador, Colombia is classified as what's called a mega-diverse city, and it's ranked number two in the world in terms of environmental diversity, so the landscapes that the country covers. So you've got the Amazon rainforest butts into parts of Colombia, and then you've got highlands, you've got the Andes Mountains, you've got grasslands, deserts, you've got the Atlantic on the east and the Pacific on the west. They, the country butts onto both, which is really rare stunning coastline. Um, And the range in landscapes really contributes to the many different climates in in Colombia. So you've got cool climates, humid climates. Um, Where we're going for this, I think it's a permanently kind of temperate climate that's not too hot and not too cold. Um, You know, you've got coastal climates, mountain really mountain climates. Um, Due to its location, it's actually part of the Ring of Fire, which if you look up a picture of it, it kind of comes right down to New Zealand, almost close to Australia, up through Japan and then crosses over and pretty much comes down the whole west coast of the United States and then into Colombia. So they are subject to quite a lot of earthquakes and things like that. But Colombia is actually ranked number six in the world in terms of their freshwater supply, which is quite incredible. And it actually really impressively has some of the lowest rates of deforestation in the world. So you know how much of the Amazon is being deforested across South America. They've got controls on that in Colombia and a lot of these incredible, unique locations are protected. I think I remember reading that nine, Colombia has like 90% of the world's rare birds or something in one spot or oh, no plants, sorry, um, in one spot. So Bre- listen to Brett. I kind of took a little bit from things that he emailed me. He wrote, quote, overall, Colombia is one of the most wonderful countries for tourism. It offers so much and people are extremely friendly, unquote. So the life expectancy in, I keep going to say Cambodia for some reason, Colombia is 74.8 as of 2015, which is quite a jump from what it would have been in probably the 60s. Um, It has low rates of infant mortality and really high rates of literacy, 94.58% of adults are literate and 98.66% of youth, which is actually on par with a lot of places like Cambodia where it's actually the young that are the ones that speak the most English Um, and the government is really putting more into the education of its people. Famous Colombians from history um, include Gabriel Garcia Marquez who is a famous author, uh, Shakira, Pablo Escobar and Sofia Vergara who I always think of. So Just to get into a bit about why Colombia was so dangerous for so long, um, in particular the city of Medellin, Medellin, which I'll get into because that's where – Ramazan's murder takes place. So tensions in Colombia have basically been simmering between a number of different factors. And I'm sure that if you've watched Locked Up Abroad, there was quite a number of episodes that took place in Colombia, including one that I remember really well, which was a man who was abducted at a checkpoint by the FARC, which is, um, a revolutionary kind of side group. And they took him into the forest and kept him for quite a long time. And then he ultimately, they try to get, this is how they make their money, um, you know, to keep going. And, um, he ultimately like kind of faked that he had a terminal illness and they let him go to the Red Cross. It was really like interesting, but basically it's the government, the military paramilitary groups drug groups and you know crime syndicates and left wing guerrillas which were the FARC which stands for the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia you may have heard of them and another one called the National Liberation Army which is known as the ELN and these have kind of all simmered since the 1960s where the FARC really um, wanted to take control over certain you know areas and you know state their claim in certain areas. um, And that also includes, as we'll get into them, drug cartels and how they controlled so much of Colombia. I'm sorry if I'm not explaining it very well. I'm only scratching the surface talking about this. I'm sure at some point I'll do another episode on Colombia and I'll go into other parts of it. But As Brett says coming up, it's literally one of the most complex places to research in the whole world, and I can't spend the whole episode talking about it. But the FARC were actually dissolved about four years ago in 2017, but the ELN still exists today. But just because the FARC officially like had a ceasefire and the government were able to have a lot of them turn in their weapons, it doesn't mean that there aren't random dissidents out there who are still kind of operating. So, Obviously, in this part of the world, the drug industry is a massive earner. And when the 60s came around, and especially the United States, where they were all taking coke and psychedelics, and pretty much they were the Colombian drug scene, which you'd know from watching the movie Blow, were pretty much making a fucking shitload of money sending drugs up, you know, to the states. I think they controlled 90%, or Pablo Escobar did, of the cocaine in the United States at the time. But This drug war that raged for a number of decades unfortunately claimed the lives of primarily civilians who were trapped in this crossfire, and all they did wrong was that they were born in Colombia. In the sixties, demand for trafficking um, such such drugs as cocaine because the plants, the cocoa plants, grow really. Widely here, um, I believe in the foothills of the Andes, but I'm not entirely sure, their industry just went, you know, mental, their production skyrocketed and that's how the Medellin cartel came to be Um, and what it costed to produce in Colombia versus what it was sold for in the United States was crazy, the amount of money they were making Rebel groups like the FARC controlled many of the parts of Colombia where COCA grew um, and obviously corrupt governments, as you'd see in this part of the world over and over again. It feels like a broken record doing this episode. Um, they just kind of turned a blind eye because I'm sure most of them were on the take. But the war on drugs, which was kicked off by Ronald Reagan, really, um, but there was a big kind of shift into overdrive in the 2000s, really set out to break apart all these different palomites paramilitary groups like the FARC. Um, Cocaine production in Colombia actually peaked in 2000 and with, I guess it was um, mostly like George Bush, with these efforts by 2010 into the Obama administration, um, cocaine production in Colombia actually was reduced by 60%. Now, don't get me started on Bolivia because we'll do that on another one, but they basically make it like in their prisons as part of industry. So the level of drug related violence was halved in just the last 10 years from 2010 to 2020. Um, and the country has often been considered the most violent country in the world, but currently it doesn't really even rank, I think, the most violent country in the world is Afghanistan, but the ones near to Colombia that are the most violent um, are El Salvador and Honduras, uh, Venezuela, obviously, because of their corrupt government, um, Guatemala, which we've been to before, and, um, I mean, South Africa. Um, and this is, these parts of the world, I just feel sorry for the people who ultimately have to live there and can't escape. They're basically with the FARC and these paramilitary groups, there was People really lived in fear for a number of decades when things were at their worst, Um, you know, Uh, politicians were just gunned down, people disappeared, enforced disappearances. Um, People were kidnapped and tortured. Um, And this ultimately led to a lot of displaced persons in Colombia who lost their homes and, you know, their livelihoods. And the rebel groups also assassinated um, politicians and, you know, leading people in the government, um, kidnapping and extortion. That made me think of, I can't think of if it was in I don't think it's in Colombia. I think it was in Mexico, but I don't know if any of you have heard, seen that thing on that guy who was an expert in kidnappings, and he went down to Mexico to talk about it at a seminar, and he got kidnapped. Um, Yeah, that just made me think of it. So by the year two thousand, Colombia had the highest rates of kidnappings in the world, and this is basically these guerrilla groups like the FARC and ELN funding themselves. So if you've ever seen any of those episodes on Locked Up Abroad, you'll understand um, getting a getting a, um, a ransom and then letting them go, but often not letting them go or abducting somebody who has no money, um, or the government won't pay for them and gen- just offing them because they couldn't afford to keep holding on to them. Um, according to at least the authorities in Colombia, kidnappings have decreased in Colombia in the last 20 years by 90%. And I think this is probably a, a right statistic from everything that I know. Um, in 2011, the president of Colombia, Juan Manuel Santos, he launched this kind of initiative called Borders for Prosperity and this was to fight the levels of poverty because Colombia still is a very poor country even though its economy continues to grow it's not an instant thing that happens where everyone bounces back and is loaded um and to combat violence from these groups who operate kind of along the border where quite a lot of people who were kidnapped were motorcycling through like a guy I remember and locked up abroad and they kind of like get USU passed through to Colombia um So, ultimately, they were able to bring down by 2016 the murder rate in Colombia. So, it was 24.4 per 100,000. Now, I look at these stats all the time for this podcast, so that's still very high, Um, but it's actually the lowest since 1974, 2016. So, this initiative, Borders for Prosperity, really did work. Um, I mean, Mexico has like, you know, one around, I think, from memory. It's like 20 people per 100,000 or 30 people, um, kind of on par. So, this is a 40-year low in terms of murders. And obviously, this is good because it's going to bring in tourism because it hasn't been a... Tourism hasn't been a massive driver in Colombia because you can't imagine anyone going to Colombia until Pablo Escobar had been killed and even then um, it was quite dangerous. So the in 2017, the government also signed a peace agreement with the FARC, which technically like disbanded them. But of course, as these things happen, they often just join together in other kind of separate groups. So Basically, also, Venezuela plays into Colombia in a, in quite a big way, um and Bolivia. So a lot of Venezuelans and Bolivians are fleeing because if you know anything about those places they're they're just shitholes for people to live in. Venezuela has, has become one of the worst places, most dangerous in the world. um and on one point i'll I will do an episode on it, but I can't be bothered, but Venezuelans have been you know, immigrating into Colombia, because imagine your place is so bad, your country, that Colombia is like the promised land. Um, and v- Venezuelans have come in and because they have, no way to survive. They've resorted to crime in order to fund their lifestyles in Colombia um, and have actually joined gangs because there's no other way to survive. And Venezuelan women are really highly at risk of prostituting themselves um, in Colombia because there's no other way for them to get an education or make a living. So to break down why all of this is happening and why it all happened, in short, it's a turf war, which is pretty much Similar to every other episode I've ever done, I think, on a South American country. Um, so the high levels of government corruption do not help. So, according to a study by Colombia's National Center for Historical Memory, between 1958, when things really started to heat up in terms of violence in Colombia, and 2013, 220,000 people were killed in this conflict and over 50%. Actually, like 70% of those were just civilians who were trying to live their lives. People were forced from their homes, forced to, you know, immigrate to the United States or other places. Um, And at one point, it had one of the highest populations of internally displaced people. But according to listener Brett, who now lives in Medellin, um, petty crime is really what you'd expect as things have gotten better there. And I will say, I myself was like amazed when I was researching Medellin, how, what a beautiful place it is um, and how much people are missing out by not going there and how wrong I was. Because even when Stephen recommended Colombia and he said he'd lived there, I was like, oh, fuck. Like that's, it's just a dangerous, horrible place to go. And I was so wrong. I've never been so wrong about a place in my life because I've got Stephen who lived there um, at one point and Brett who's lived there for five years and just sings its praises all the time. So I suggest like if you ever want to go to these places like don't just go off the stigma associated with it but I'm going to read to you from one of Brett's emails quote, Colombia is one of the most complicated countries you will ever research. The history here is insane and depending on which type of case you choose there are a multitude of ways you can go. There are a decent amount of foreigners killed every year but they are almost always involved in something illicit." Just Felicity here, breaking from that. That's pretty much every case I do on this podcast. Um, Most people, you know, I don't know, kind of, I say 50% of people are into something dodgy. Keep going. Basically, there are five rules for foreigners. Do not get involved in selling drugs. Don't get involved with selling girls or women. Watch your drinks. Be careful of dating apps. And no da papaya, which means don't flaunt your wealth. Oh, papaya means wealth, does it? Number one and number two will almost always get you killed and quickly. And the last three can range from a life lesson to death. I'm not sure you've ever heard of scopolamine, which is devil's breath. It's a complicated topic with lots of misconceptions. No, I haven't. One other way to get in trouble in Colombia is travelling in no-go zones. Certain areas are known for lots of guerrilla activity, FARC among others. There are certain areas of the country I just would not go, and when people choose to go to these areas, bad things can happen, from murder to kidnappings to disappear disappearances. There is a lot of poverty, so crime can be a problem for tourists, but it is more related to theft and druggings. There was a string of druggings a couple of years ago that did lead to some tourist or foreigners' deaths. But the government's busted a few of those rings so it has not been as prevalent recently. One of my friends was drugged and kidnapped which turned into quite the ordeal. There was a U.S. citizen killed in a city near the coast about a month ago. A man from the U.S. came down to Colombia to be with his girlfriend who he met online. He was killed in a robbery attempt not long after he arrived. It seemed pretty straightforward but then a lot of people are speculating his girlfriend had him killed. I mean probably. He had bought a very expensive place and that turned a lot of heads especially in coastal towns where there is less money however do not deter you from however do not let that deter you from wanting to visit Colombia these are isolated incidents i can promise if you ever visit Colombia It will be one of your favourite places in the world. If you ever need help with the Colombian episode, please feel free to reach out. I've cycled all over Colombia and visited almost every part of the country. It seems like you and I have similar travelling experiences, except yours in Asia and mine in Central and South America. So, yeah. So, thank you so much, Brett. I'm not sure if I have another quote from him coming up, but. Just because Brett at one point when he recommended this case said to me that most robberies where people are drugged and then robbed and maybe murdered or just left after they've been drugged and robbed are towards men um, and not women. It doesn't mean that women get off scot-free in Colombia either. Um, I was reading that domestic violence has one of the highest rates in Colombia um, in the world. And yeah, that's, that's a similar statistic that I find kind of across all of South America. So let's talk a little bit about Medellin because that's where Ramazan was going um, and that's unfortunately where he disappeared and was murdered. So 25 years ago, Time magazine called Medellin the most dangerous city on earth and unfortunately that has really stuck with people um, and myself included and people have really got the wrong idea and thought that it has just wallowed in this Really dangerous drug cartel situation. Um, even though Pablo Escobar was killed in 1993, um, back then the Medellin cartel ran not like ran the city, and it's the second biggest city in Colombia, next to the capital Bogota. As officials, even though corruption levels were high, um, they were frequently assassinated, and. Police officers really didn't want to do the job because they would often just be killed. Um, and regular civilians who somehow found themselves in this crossfire were often killed or they disappeared. Um, and just in one year, 1987 in Medellin, which was kind of at the peak of Pablo Escobar's wealth and when he was really just rolling in it, around 3,000 people were murdered. Um, that, and that's like a crazy crime rate. Rate when you consider how many that is out of a hundred thousand. Medellin is the capital of the Antio- Antioquia province, um, which is by definition mountainous, and it's actually called the city of Eternal Spring because its weather stays mostly nice and temperate, which draws in quite a lot of expats who want to retire or just move there to save a lot of money. Coffee is grown in this region as well, so the drug cartels ran this town, including the Medellin cartel, which was run by our mate Pablo Escobar. Unfortunately, he is so intrinsically like in the fabric of Medellin, you can't talk about the town without talking about him. When he was killed by it was like a US-backed group. In 1993, there was almost an instant decrease in crime because they no longer had, you know, their ringleader. Unfortunately, major cities who, you know, had just seen, how do I describe this? A lot of people who left Pablo Escobar's cartel, or even in 2017, when the FARC was officially disbanded, it doesn't mean that the people in it just um, went on to like a good path with their lives. A lot of them, this is very confusing and I actually tried to like research this a lot. So they disbanded into groups and reorganised into groups that ultimately the FARC is far left and they organised into like far right groups. And then I saw the term social cleansing, which ethnic cleansing or social cleansing like sends a chill up my spine when I see something like that. So They have kind of started exerting their influence in cities, especially Medellin and Cali, which is, I think, the most dangerous city now in um, Colombia. Not so much in Medellin, but in Cali and Bogota and um, Cartagena, is that it? they go around to people giving them curfews. They're not police and they're not like authorities. They're just these groups that want to socially cleanse. So they wipe out people who cause them problems, thinking I think that they're doing a favour for the cops. So um, prostitutes, drug addicts and alcoholics are all like in their crosshairs because I think they think that the drug rate will grow down if you get rid of the person who may be committing the crime or forcing that. So drug addicts, you know, get rid of drug the problem with drugs by killing them and get rid of the problem with drug trafficking because they won't be there um, and all of those different things. So while crime has declined dramatically in the last decade in Medellin, um, the city has become like this hub for people starting businesses and entrepreneurs and they say that murder is still commonplace because it does have a high ranking in comparison to like, <laughs> I mean, in comparison to Mexico, it doesn't, but in comparison to Melbourne, um, it does. The city has just under 4 million residents currently. So as much as like Brett says, it's still safe. The numbers are that murder has gone on the rise again. And Poverty usually contributes to that. But when you're not having visitors, I mean, they export quite a lot and they're in quite a lot of industries that export things, including coffee, but you're not having tourism as well, which as I've said a million times when I started this podcast to now, lockdowns and not allowing people to travel will really destroy a lot of families and a lot of places, and I don't know how they're functioning. And with that comes desperation, um, crime, murder rates. You know, it's a chain reaction. So in 2008, there was a 33% rise from the year before in murders um, and violent deaths. And this increased again by 200% in 2009, So we've gone from 2007 where 654 people were murdered in um, Median. and then by 2009 there was just short of 3,000 people and they still have twice the average homicide rate in Cambodia than other cities but they're actually statistically, I don't have the stat here but it's safer than New York City <laughs> to, be, to live in Medellin. So if you live in New York, you can live in Medellin and there's no problems. And I'm sure Chicago and Laurie Lightfoot, Chicago has like a 500% increase on Medellin, believe me. Um, they have 20 times the average homicide rate from the United States. Um, and on average, nine people were killed every day about a decade ago. So there is actually more than double the number of homicides in New York City than in... Medellin, and New York City has a population of 8.6 million. So, when I was kind of researching Medellin, I realised that the Telegraph, a couple of years ago, there was a big push for tourism there, and I don't know if it was coordinated or not, but the Telegraph in the UK ran a piece that was headlined, quote, how Medellin went from murder capital to hipster holiday destination in 2018, <laughs> um, unquote. So, um, it's kind of done a big turnaround, but I found that a lot of places like have ended up doing that The writer describes how stunned they were visiting the city and writing this piece, how safe, how friendly, these big plazas, tonnes of green areas, lots of culture, amazing food, great locals. Um, The Guardian also referred to Medellin as, quote, the miracle of reinvention, unquote. They basically say that no other city has turned itself around like this. The writer Chris Moss wrote for The Guardian, quote, I had my doubts about Medellin. Next time someone says most dangerous city on earth, I'd pull a machine gun on them. That spurious claim was made over a quarter of a century ago in Time magazine in March 1988. Like Bogota and Santiago de Cali, Medellin is a much wealthier, safer and more fashionable city these days and its year-round summery climate, nearby forests and bird reserves and indeed the fact that it hasn't been backpacked into oblivion, unlike Cuzco, say, makes it a rather more desirable destination, unquote. So... Chris Moss has some anger management problems, but yeah. So many expats, including listener Brett, have relocated to Medellin. Prices are low. Um, So on average, living expenses in Medellin are 60 to 70% less than the average living conditions and um, cost of living seen in Boston, LA or Chicago. Um, So retirees like love it here, like a lot of places in the world, or just young people who can't be fucked with paying what they're paying in cities because it's fucking extortion. Um, Prices are low, the mood is chill. And the city is the only city to have a metro system in all of Colombia. There's galleries and museums and big plazas and hipster cafes and bars. And there's 30 universities just in the city of Medellin they refer to the city as cosmopolitan. And as I said, the cost of living is insane, but obviously as more people move there, that does naturally go up. So even Lonely Planet is sprouting Median tourism now. (laughs) And when you go on Lonely Planet and it kind of recommends tours to you and things, I love that the people of Median are really cashing in on what Pablo Escobar did for decades in the city, because most of the tours are like Pablo Escobar historical walking tours and eat where Pablo Luis Cabar 8 and things like that. And why not like cash in on his name? Because he kind of put Medellin on the map. um, And that interests people, that kind of, you know, true crime element of things. So now that I've talked quite a lot about Colombia and Medellin, although it's about probably one-tenth of what I could talk about, I just wanted to set the scene for where um, Ramazan was traveling down to, to Medellin in 2018. So let's get into Ramazan's death. Now, I will say that there's not a whole lot of twists and turns with this case. It's pretty straightforward, so at the end we'll talk a little bit more about similar cases. So Ramazan Genke, he travelled down to Medellin for this seminar he was speaking at in early December um, 2018 and he was last seen at a salsa club because salsa's big in this area, I believe, It's Cali that's the capital of salsa or Cartagena. I know it's not Medellin, but salsa clubs are big. And remember, um, Ramo was into salsa dancing. So... That night he attended the club and then he vanished and that was December 6. Now, when they questioned the people who worked there, because there's not a lot of play-by-play coverage of this case, it's all just the same recycled stuff, it basically said that he was last seen leaving the salsa bar and he appeared intoxicated and two women were walking with him and they took him to a car and put him in it and there seemed to be an accomplice waiting there which I presume would be a man, and then he was not seen again. His family were informed that he was missing, and they did quite a good job of communicating back and forth. Um, you know, the authorities with the U.S. embassy in Midi and back home um, to Canada. Sorry, the Canadian embassy. Now, his family and friends turned to social media. You know, once he went missing, to spread the word that he was missing, but about a day or two, the 7th and 8th of December, just a day or two after he was taken, um, Ramos' bank accounts started emptying out of money. And before long, I think they were completely empty and I'm not sure how much exactly was taken. Now, this is a pretty common thing, which we will get into, um, their operating procedure, how they do this. But Long story short, Ramos' body was found, I think, on a riverbank in a remote area just outside of Medellin two, uh, two weeks later on December 20th, 2018. Um, and there's no word of how he died on anything. Um, and I have to presume that it was an overdose of it. That's kind of what I think. Um, but then again it could have been another kind of death. As we get into how these groups operate, you'll see that most people get out alive um out of these druggings. So Flash forward um, two months to February 2019 and four people were arrested and I believe it was two women and two men and they've never named them. And the only picture that I have of them is their faces are blurred out. But just the build um, of the women and what they're wearing, I have to presume that they're really young, like early 20s. They just look really young, even though their faces are blurred out. Now, the investigators on Ramos' case were able to do like a sting and arrest them. And they found 30 credit cards, you know, all from different victims, pills, including benzos, benzodiazepines, um, which is, you know, a sedative like Valium. um, And they were able to find currency from Venezuela, Peru, Canada. So we can only presume that these are all left behind from people who have either reported it or not reported it. So, Multiple reports from local media at the time say that Ramo met these girls who it was the women that he met up with um, on an app. And I think it's probably Tinder or Plenty of Fish. And that's what um, Brett wrote to me when he was writing about Columbia that he, you know, what he knows is he was on a dating app. Now, I'm not going to judge him because he's dead. He was married. Um, you know, surprise, surprise. His wife believes that he was, quote unquote, taken advantage of, which, you know, obviously, but a lot of these, as I'll get into, groups operate through dating apps now. It's it's just made it really easy for them, especially with foreigners, men who are down there on their own, things like that. So... Medellin is considered a medium-risk city, according to the State Department in the USA. And there's a group called International SOS. And so I started kind of looking up different cases because, unfortunately, that's the end of um, Ramos' story. And I have no no proof that a trial has started. I presume COVID kind of put that on the back burner. But I will ask Brett to let me know if he sees anything because since they were arrested, there's been no news on that case at all. So this group called International SOS, who is an international travel safety group, it says that meeting strangers, both on social media, online dating apps, and at night in these areas should be avoided. He says that no particular dating app is more dangerous than the other. Um, But victims, scammers will do this no matter where there's an online connection. So According to a colleague of Ramo's um, in the same economics department at his university in Canada, he said, quote, Ramo was a gentle scholarly man, a prolific researcher who deserved a better fate, unquote. So these are really common, these kinds of dating app scams where people meet up with someone and then they wake up usually alive um, after being drugged and their bank accounts are basically emptied out. Now, I believe that Ramo, you know, was drugged with um, benzos and you know valium, maybe it was an overdose it 's very hard to overdose on Valium, maybe they killed him um, you know because they were they weren 't going to let him go. Something happened you know he rec- you know he was able to recognize them he came to something like that. The victims are usually released alive by these groups within seventy two hours they don 't want to be done for murder on top of drugging these people um, but unfortunately, since these people 's arrests we don 't know anything. So the maximum sentence for murder in Colombia is 60 years. And it's really quite incredible because just about six months ago, they passed a law that says it's 60 years maximum. You won't get anything less for both rape and child murder, which is quite incredible. But I'm presuming that these guys will, you know, do 20 or 30, I guess. Now, prison sentences, there's no death penalty in Colombia. They haven't had that for about 100 years There's a lot of things that they can do to knock off parts of their sentence, work, study. For every two days of work or study, the prisoner earns one day reduction of their sentence. So yeah, Brett, if you can keep us posted on Ramo's case, that would be really good. So I found a couple of other ones that talk about the drug scopolamine, which Brett mentioned earlier in one of the things he said. He said it's known as devil's breath. So I thought I'd talk a little bit more about that because it seems that this drug is used more than benzos to drug people because it grows quite freely in parts of Colombia. So this drug is a, it's naturally growing, it's kind of like a nightshade. And it's got a lot of <laughs> urban legends around it that it turns you into a zombie who is at somebody else's command. Um, those are urban legends have really been broken down. It's It will really just put you out very quickly, which is what most people's experiences who have been drugged with this, mostly men who come to say that it is. Um, it's usually used to treat motion sickness and nausea um, and also Parkinson's and things like that, but that's it's in a patch and it kind of is a slow release being drugged with it will very quickly put you out and you have no memory of, you know, what happened. Um, one guy, he was drugged and for days he just walked around his neighborhood in like filthy clothes. So it's also known as devil's breath. And actually it's a horrible way to be drugged because you can't, it decreases your saliva, your mouth's totally dry and you're really, really sick um, for quite a while after. They say that it turns you into a zombie, like what Jeffrey Dahmer was trying to do, but that's like an urban legend because in certain movies or in these urban legends, it's blown into someone's face and then they become a zombie. And I'm sure that you've seen that kind of recreated. Um, it's usually like in pill form, really that kind of powder things kind of bullshit. Um, but basically, Joseph Mengele in Auschwitz, he would use it as like a form of truth serum um, to try to interrogate people. He was the angel of death in the concentration camp Auschwitz in Poland. Um, He was a kind of early user of it. Now, certain truth serums do work because they lower your inhibitions, so you're not really primed to lie. Um, And at one point, um, I can't say it probably, um, scopolamine, it was looked into by the CIA as a truth serum to use, but they ultimately didn't go with that. So basically it's very commonplace in Colombia and this is what the people are using like to slip into someone's drink um, a lot of the time. So the US's overseas Security Advisory Council talked a lot about how there's quite a big spate of instances in Quito, um, basically when people are going to walk the Inca Trail. Um, And they say that there's around 50,000 scopolamine incidents there every year because quite a lot of tourists go through there. So basically the story I was going to tell you is that in December 2017, exactly one year before um, Ramo died or was died this way, two Cuban tourists who were there for a work thing were drugged with scopolamine and one of them died. He was 49 years old. His name was Victor Ignacio Cuardo. Um So they were there for an International Congress on Hydroelectric Power. So similar thing, they were there for a work do. Um, so after that event, they went to um, kind of a park like to drink Um, and after asking for a bottle of liquor um, and being approached by two women they both lost consciousness Um, and then they woke up in like a random area um, of the city and um, one lived and one died because you can overdose on scopolamine um, which if it had been Ramo that had been given that. I would think that that would have been how he died. But I actually think he was probably just murdered like a knocked off. Now, through this research, I actually found that there's a group called La Toxicous, which is a really good name for them, um, who operate in Medellin. And the cops were saying for the last few years, there's a ton of druggings that are linked back to this group and they use this drug to mostly target tourists. And it's usually men. It's like what Brett said, men need to be careful. Women aren't usually the targets. And most stories and cases that I found are men. And because it's odorless and tasteless, you don't generally know until you come to what has happened. Um, So according to PRI.org, this is how it operates. Um, This is a woman called Maria Fernanda Velotta, and she's a nurse in Bogota who sees tons of scopolamine victims every week. She said, quote, they go out to party and then they wake up two or three days later on a park bench. They arrive here without their belongings or their money, unquote. Um, and it's widely believed that many of the crimes and druggings, not just with scopolamine, but in general, like in Colombia, um, they generally aren't reported by the person who experiences it because actually like the AP said that a lot of the cases involve married men who go to bars, much like Ramo, um, or bordellos, you know, like brothels, and they don't want to report it because they don't want to own up to the fact that they were looking for women when this happened. So actually, these really high (laughs) case numbers are actually probably not, there'd be way more if everyone was reported. Um, There was Another case that they talked about when they were interviewing this nurse, and she said that um, there was three young women in Bogota, the capital, who got around preying on men, quote, "...by smearing the drug on their breasts and luring their victims to take a lick. Losing all willpower, the men readily gave up their bank access codes." The breast-temptress thieves then held them hostage for days while draining their accounts, unquote. Now, I think that's <laughs> as much breast-temptress, yeah. Um, as much as I, like, love how that's written, I think that's probably what happens. Like, they extract this information out of them, usually with threats or um, that kind of thing, or when they are coming to and they're just kind of out of it. And that's probably what happened to Ramo when the next day money started disappearing. I also read um, an article, I think it was from the Costa Rica news that was talking about an Irish guy in Medellin just at the end of 2020. He was drugged. He'd met a woman at a bar with his mate and they went out on a date like the following night. They sat down on a park bench and that's literally like the last he could remember. Um, and then he came to like in a taxi and the taxi driver was yelling at him that he'd been driving round and round in circles all night because this guy was drugged and he couldn't respond to him. Um, and when he went and checked, his wallet was gone, his passport was gone. Um, and when he went to his bank account, his life savings were gone. And he was able to like get a police report to say what happened um, and I guess hopefully at some point get his money back. But despite that, he reminded me of Brett saying like he still loves Columbia. He was like, Columbia is the best place ever. Um, You know, you just got to be careful of this stuff. He was from Ireland. Um, And he said though when he told his friends about this experience, most of them said they'd had an almost identical experience. So really is men being targeted, you know, and robbed. Now, the cases don't stop in Colombia with scopolamine, at least. There's cases that have been reported in Paris and the USA as well, and actually quite a number of the suspects in those are Colombian people. And if you're interested in a really kind of dodgy horror movie that is very similar to this and reminded me of it, um, the movie Touristas is set in Brazil, but it's basically drugging tourists, um, and then, you know, they wake up and all of their stuff is gone, there's also a number of Ayahuasca deaths, which I've talked about on another episode and random shootings of tourists as well um, in Medea. Now, some of the most recent news I saw about Medean is that the drug cartels and rebel groups that I talked about that kind of impose their own laws on cities, um, their own kind of social cleansing, as they called it, um, they haven't bothered with like fines and stuff for people who break lockdown laws and things over there. Um, according to The Guardian, quote, drug cartels and rebel groups are imposing their own bloody coronavirus lockdowns across Colombia, unquote. And that was basically they're just killing people just to deal with it. So, yeah, if you get a fine, you're pretty lucky. So, yeah, Colombia for me got me thinking about Luis Garavito and he's they say he's the most prolific serial killer in history and no one knows about him because he's not like American. <laughs> he is estimated to have killed around like three to 600 people, mostly young men and boys, um, and he was a Colombian serial killer that kind of um, operated you know, I don't know what decade, but there's quite, when I've noticed that when Colombians, like serial killers go, they go hard, like, because not many people know about him, but his story is really interesting. Unfortunately, I won't be able to do it because it, it doesn't fit into this, this kind of format for the podcast. But yeah, I hope um, that you got something out of it. Um, at some point, I'll do another Colombian episode. I just, I chose Ramos case because, I found it really interesting drugging um, and how they're using social media apps now and how they're using naturally growing this scopolamine. It actually grows and I found out in the botanic gardens in um, Bogota and it also grows in um, the valleys of the Andes mountains as well. So it's not like it's not easy to get um, or cheap to get. It's it's in like a powder form. Um, and yeah, so let me know if you have you know any other cases similar to that. So to wrap up, I'll get the website back up hopefully tomorrow. It's unknownpassagepodcast.com and I'll update the last the last few episodes that aren't up there. Um, become a patron. You go to the Patreon app and search Unknown Passage um, or... It links off the website, which will be up soon, or just search it. There's different tiers per month. And when you join, you get to choose the location for an upcoming episode. One off payments, which would really help at the moment. You guys are amazing. Um, Unknown Passage Podcast at gmail.com on PayPal. Um, leave a rating or review. If you like the show, send through any um, case suggestions to unknownpassagepodcast at gmail.com. I've got some interesting cases coming up. Um, I'm going to have my friend on soon because she's very interesting, her knowledge, to talk about something a little bit different, um, but related. And I'm not entirely sure who's up next. Let me see. Sorry, this is really bad. Um. So, I've got Amy, Paul, Neil, Lee, Molly, Angie, and Sarah coming up. Um, I'm not going to go in any particular order at the moment. It'll probably be Amy, Paul, and Neil next time. Um, Don't worry, all of yours are coming. These are patron location requests, and I will be kind of breaking them up with random choices of my own because I've got quite a lot of those um, on my list as well. So, yes, stay tuned, and yours will be coming. This one was for Stephen. I was going to do another case when he suggested Columbia, but then I the person is alive and I thought, you know, they would sue me because they're pretty hard up for money. But I was going to have my friend Mark on because he loves this case so much. Um, and then I I was like, oh, actually, no, because this person will end up getting all narky and stuff. So yeah, I will be back hopefully later on this week and try to give you another episode. I've got some really interesting cases coming up. Um, South America, the Middle East, um, North America, Middle East again, South America, um, cruise ship cases, um, Africa. So yeah, and Australia. Lorena and I are planning on doing like a big case that's famous in Australia soon. I've just been putting it off because there's so much information. And when I talk about it, I get all worked up and I'll probably fight with it. And I'm also doing a profile coming up and um, I won't ruin it for you, but it's really weird. I keep having these weird moments of synchronicity about this person who's no longer with us. And I've been having repeat dreams about them. And it's like, it's weird. It's really scaring me. So (laughs) um, yeah, so I will be back with the next episode, hopefully in a few days. And I love you all. Bye.